and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel journalist and editor. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. On today's episode, I'm joined by the sportsman, adventurer and double Olympic gold medalist, James Cracknell. We first got to know James as part of the Coxless 4 rowing team alongside Steve Redgrave that won gold at the Sydney Olympics. Several world titles later, James went on to take part in countless feats of endurance, from becoming the highest ever placed Brit to run the Marathon des Sables, the hottest, hardest race in the world, to rowing the Atlantic in a two-man boat and racing to the South Pole with his friend Ben Fogel, who you might have heard on the podcast earlier this season. Then in 2010, James's life was turned upside down. While cycling in a race across America, he was struck by a lorry and experienced a serious brain injury that left him in a coma. As we discuss, his journey to recovery has been anything but straightforward, but his story is one of sheer determination and resilience ultimately leading him to return to university, Cambridge no less, where he became the oldest ever winner of the famous Oxbridge boat race. Travel has been hugely important to James. Of course, he spent a lot of time on some of the world's most beautiful lakes and rivers, and I love being by the water, so I really enjoyed hearing about those. And his Slovenian all-time favourite destination is a spot that I've now added to my travel wish list, and I'm sure you might do too. There's a lot to cover today, so let's get started. Here are the travel diaries of James Cracknell. James Cracknell, welcome to the Travel Diaries. Thanks so much for joining me today. How are you? Very good. No, thank you very much. So we're speaking remotely. You're in London. I'm in the countryside at the moment, and travel is gradually getting going again. As someone who is so active and busy normally how did you handle those months of stricter lockdown i am i i basically i think a lot of sports are the same well all the sport i did in, in rowing that a lot of our time was spent training not racing so we only race maybe a handful of times a year and so we used to go on training camps where it was like groundhog day <laughs> so being locked down is i haven't suffered with the uh doing the same thing every day because I, I just I spent a long part of my life doing that um i think the the one thing about about traveling is that i did it before and you'd well, i would go to various rowing lakes around the world so i'm an expert in lakes around the world um uh, but it's nice to go somewhere where you don't have to take a boat with you and you have a freedom to do things and so, yeah, I've missed that side of it. And also with, with kids as well, seeing it through their eyes because they're, you know, they're seeing things for the first time that you, you're used to seeing. And they're just saying, wow, it's, you know, things that you don't, you don't see. That gives a whole new appreciation for travel in a way, seeing it through their eyes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And they're very, you know, they're very lucky in that, that they've been to places that I didn't see and see things that I didn't see. I didn't go on a plane until I was 18. Okay, so now's a great time to start off your travel diaries. Chapter one is your earliest childhood travel memory. Yeah. You didn't go on a plane until you were 18. So were your early holiday memories in the UK? No, actually, the we used to go camping in France a lot. Ah, right. Okay. I guess my parents, they weren't. They were wealthy. In fact, my one of my granddads won the pools. And so they still have that very money-saving. Yeah, The only brand name we used to have was Ketchup, Heinz Ketchup. Everything else was own brand. And so they, they still had that that mindset of actually, like, where where is it going to go? It could all go tomorrow. 
Um, and so we said camping in France, which is brilliant, but the cheapest ferry was always like five in the morning. So my earliest memory is getting woken up at the in the middle of the night, basically half asleep in the car on the way to Dover. <laughs> and as we got older, even then we're still doing it when we were like 12 or 13. I'm like, can we not get a later ferry? Why do we have to start the holiday at like four in the morning? So those are the first ones. So I guess the first travel memory is getting in the car when it was dark. Yeah. (laughs) Do you remember where in France you'd go to? We'd make our way down to the down to the forest in the in the south of France, sort of near. Well, I guess the west coast of Biarritz, and then down to the to the lakes. The French are uh, so lucky in that it's got such a big footprint and. Paris is such a dominant city in the country that all roads lead there, but there's so much, there's so many other spaces around there. And what I really loved about about it, and, and still do really like about France actually, is that every town is they're very proud of their towns in a way that we haven't got the same thing here. And every town has a a big community centre, be that sports, be that market, be that. A showground, or they, or they do have a traveling circus or traditional French sort of activities that they do, and and that's just and every and every town has that, and that was kind of like that's a really good community spirit within France, and then also mm. I do like the way that they don't speak English. <laughs> yeah, they they really, and if you make an effort to speak French, they they'd be much more friendly. But if you didn't make any effort to speak French, they really they can't be bothered. Yeah. And and when did you first get into rowing? First started rowing, thirteen or fourteen. I went to school where someone broke their neck at playing rugby, so they stopped rugby and went to school in Kingston. Wow. And then it was by the river, so they they started a boat club. And I, I guess I I played rugby for a club outside of school. And then when I started rowing, I I did that. So um, yeah, so thirteen, and then. I guess I got sort of pretty serious about it at sixteen or seventeen, which is actually when I stopped going on holiday with my parents because we'd have Great Britain international racing at 16, 17, 18 in the summer and then at the, at the sort of under 18 World Championships. And so that was the, the school summer holidays taken care of. And and you made this choice to commit. So we first got to know you rowing in Team GB alongside Sir Steve Redgrave and winning Olympic gold medals. So looking back at that time, are they... You know, are they happy memories? Yeah, I mean that. Yeah, so two thousand was a very special, special year. Those four years up to the Olympics, so you kind of break it down to Olympiad. So from ninety seven, ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand is all, all one Olympiad. But it's a long time to get there. I'd I won the under eighteen world championships in nineteen ninety, and I was selected for the Barcelona Olympics, and I, I broke my shoulder, so I, I missed out on those, and then I got ill when I was in Atlanta for the next Olympics. So I'd, I'd sort of been selected for two Olympic Games and only made the start line on the third. And uh. at that point, I was mid-20s and I was in a huge amount of debt because there was no funding in sport at that point. And and so, you know, my, my dad's an accountant. And he was going, look, at some stage, you, you're going to want to buy a house and nobody's going to want to marry you <laughs> if <laughs> you're in debt and can't buy a house and you're 30. Um, although you know the reality is, I don't think many thirty year olds buy a house now anyway. But that's yeah. the point. You know, with people who've backed you all the time and saying, "Look, actually, you're not a footballer. You're not making any money from your sport. 
it's a it's that kind of commitment and we used to train seven days a week for for six weeks then have a day off so all your weekends are gone so there are no traveling away for weekends and so it is that that kind of commitment but at the same time you build up a, a bond of trust with people that you do sport with then is deeper than than any other any other bond i've found mm, mm, mm. so rowing has taken you to some amazing waterways and lakes all over the world are there some that stand out to you in particular as being the most uh, breathtaking there's uh, a lake in south of france um called Egbelette. well i'm sure they pronounce it differently um which is near i guess the nearest airports with leon and near uh Exile ban um, and that's just it's the warmest lake in France it's a really it's a, it's a sort of blue that you can't imagine a lake is that blue and then there's mountains all around it with huge thermals on it so they have people in paragliding up there that just sort of sit on the thermals all day and you do wonder why you're in a rowing boat when they're up there skimming around you think that looks a lot more fun <laughs> um we we used to go up to a lake altitude which is in Galta in Austria or just above Galta um, which is a glacial melt lake. So it, obviously it, a reservoir, it, it fills up uh, over the summer. And, and we were the only only country that went out there training, just the, our men's team went up there. And it's in the shadow of um, Pisbuin and wild cows and horses trotting around. And then you, you kind of very isolated, which is, is special. Mm. And then I didn't row on it actually, but um, the the lake where the Rio Olympics were, I was out there commentating. Mm-hmm. So normally, if you're at the Olympics, the, the rowing lakes are sort of man-built, massive swimming pools or um, a big lake out of the city. Whereas the lake in Rio was uh, right in, in the centre of the city, pretty much, and right in the shadow of Christ the Redeemer. So if you look up from the start, you've got um, Christ on the hill. And yeah, that's a very special place. That sounds spectacular. And added bonus to a destination that's already so special yeah so let's move on then to chapter two which is the first place you fell in love with what would that be it would be one of the the like we very rarely went back to the same sort of area of france twice um even though we were camping all the time but it was um annecy in the summer because you know, people go skiing there in the winter but actually the mountain those resorts in the summer are amazing because they've got all the infrastructure that people have for skiing, but yet they'll have massive lakes. They have amazing hills, whether you go biking, whether you go walking, whether you sit by the lake. Rather than being trapped in a, in a hotel with a, with a pool and a kind of games room, actually you basically have a playground of everything from, from lake to snow peaks that you can still reach the snow in the middle of summer. It's amazing. So I think that's the, the, the natural variety in that place was what, what captured me because pretty much all of those things you don't have in Britain. You know, the, the Lake District is lovely, but they're still a bit chilly in the winter. Mm. You've got a warm lake. You've got snow if you if you walk up there or get, get the cable car up there. Um, you've got amazing mountain bike routes. It's, it's just a very good playground. Has so much to offer. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's plenty of, of places like that in and France is blessed by, you know, the Alps and and the Pyrenees as well. 
Yeah, it's a beautiful country. Somewhere that I covered as a destination special earlier this season, actually. So if people want to hear more about France, do tune into that. So (laughs) you went on to win two Olympic rowing golds, six world championship golds, and you then turned your attention to some other enormous physical challenges. The first couple with your friend Ben Fogel, who was on the podcast earlier this season. Uh, rowing in a two-man boat across the Atlantic and then racing to the South Pole, both extraordinary achievements. Interestingly, the South Pole is one of the most popular destinations that my guests pick for the top of their travel bucket lists, Antarctica. I can't imagine your experience of it is necessarily what they might be expecting. So I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about your experience of it, though. I guess the experiencing Antarctica is because of what you read about it, if you're going through, whether it be the worst journey in the world or a Shackleton's endurance expedition, or you know, you know, read about about Scott or everything, is that what, what a awful, inhospitable place it is? And it's for me, it was more of actually right. Well, what is it like? And you know, those guys obviously had to overwinter there, where it's you know, 24 hours of darkness for a huge amount of times so that they could actually set off and give themselves the best shot of of getting to the to the South Pole. And a part of me wanted to experience it under a time pressure. Whereas if you're going on an expedition or or more of a holiday type trip where you do it at your own pace and you, you, you work around your fatigue rather than doing it when you don't want to do it. And that's when you, you kind of make mistakes there in terms of you have to read the weather and when to put your tent up because if the wind gets up, then you, you're in a world of trouble if you if you haven't got your everything ready and locked down in time um and those decisions are hard to make when you're tired and so i think living it is never going to be like those guys did and i wouldn't want it to be but under a little bit of pressure to put yourself in a, a very uncomfortable environment in an incredibly isolated place was was very lucky i think going back to where we you know, the obviously the, the south pole is on the plateau the ice plateau and that's not the most exciting place in Antarctica. To be honest, the most exciting place is around the edge because that's where you have the wildlife. That's where you have the rocks. That's where you have everything that you, you picture, whether it be you know killer whales, seals, penguins. You know, they don't hang around in the middle. They're all on the edge. So I think that, that would be the, the places to, to explore. The middle it's, and the mountains, walking up through, actually trekking up through the mountains to the plateau is amazing because things that you you don't really realize is that the so the average height of the continent um is the highest continent on worlds Antarctica, I didn't because it's, that. it's, got the, it's a, the the ice for the plateau the plateau is you know, size of europe that it's a mile thick the ice and so all the mountains are under a mile of ice so it's that's the mm. so you're basically you're walking at over 2000 meters when you're there because you're on you're on that much ice so does it so does it feel like you're walking at altitude yeah you do, yeah, you do feel, and you climb as you as you walk up onto the or trek up onto the plateau. But the what you don't picture when, you, when you're there, obviously the the horizon is endless white, and the sun when we were there was was 24 hour sunlight. But if you think of the all the fresh water in the world, 40 percent of the world's fresh water is frozen on Antarctica. Wow, and there's a lot of made rightly so about global warming but if antarctica melted 
global sea levels would rise by 50 meters. It's hard to comprehend. And so London would be 45 meters underwater if Antarctica melted. Now that's the, the sort of, that gives you a sense of the scale of, of the place yeah. and, and what, what, the, what the changes in the environment are happening there. Um, and so, you know, that's why there is the, the pact of not drilling under Antarctica for oil that is there and all countries have ratified that and I'm sure some will be getting twitchy about it and want more oil but the, the reality is if we if we muck around with that ice plateau then we're lining up future generations for a huge amount of trouble. Yeah it's it's so important for us to be constantly reminded of facts like that and did it feel unfeasibly big when you were walking across it? Yeah it's, um, it's unfeasibly big. An incredible environment and I'm sure a place where you learned a lot about yourself. Chapter three is the place where you learned the most about yourself. Where where else has been a game changer for you? Actually, it was a another trip I, I went on with, with Ben Fogel when we rode across the Atlantic because similar to, to Antarctica, you're a very small dot on a massive landscape. You know, we were in a in a seven meter boat for, for nearly fifty days, just the two of us. And again, a small dot and as one did about a big wave would just flip you over any time and it does make you feel very vulnerable but also incredibly if there's one other person there you can get quite bored of him quickly and um you spend a lot of time in your own head and a lot of time thinking and i think that was where i really i think for the first time became comfortable in my own company mm. being on a boat with no internet you had a sat phone but that, that was really expensive you need to keep it charged up for safety um you didn't really you know you have one other person to talk to and half the time I when I was rowing he was asleep when he was rowing I was asleep so you you have to get used to and be happy in your own company it took me I think that was the, the hardest thing to get used to is that being out there in my own head you spend pretty much 12 hours a day on your own and uh and now I don't you, you asked right at the start how's lockdown been I haven't got a problem with it that could mean I'm really antisocial, but I have I kind of can occupy my own head pretty well. And that trip led you to be at peace with your own company. Peace with my company, and also, I'm not sure so many of them appreciated it, but where you've let people down or behave badly. So I definitely I came back and I phoned up a few girlfriends and apologised for bad behaviour when I was younger. <laughs> Wow. Thinking, why are you calling me now like i was stuck in my own head and i felt really bad for two days about this you know <laughs> and they're going that was 15 years ago i've got over it <laughs> That's kind of, you weren't that special don't worry i haven't mourned you for 15 years you know that but those you kind of it makes you think and ask yourself questions that yeah i don't think in everyday life we, we don't ask ourselves questions about behavior about how you are when you walk into a room and if you radiate or if you sort of you know are a drain on a room you know all those things hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travelers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Right now, our physical and mental health and wellness has never felt so important, has it? And there's one place that can help you to look after all three. Right in the heart of Mayfair, Lancerhoff at the Arts Club combines the best in fitness and medicine and is available to both members and non-members. The medical services offered by orthopedists, general practitioners and cardiologists are complemented by a team of physiotherapists, osteopaths and chiropractors who use pioneering analytics and equipment to create bespoke health and well-being plans. State-of-the-art medical technology like in-house MRI scanners and a spinal movement lab complement their holistic approach. Exclusive to the club's members are the gym, fitness classes, training with amazing personal trainers, as well as access to a member's lounge with a range of healthy dishes based on the Lancerhoff Energy Cuisine. And next year, this is so exciting, they've got a big new opening, Lancerhoff Silt, which is the first Lancerhoff to be built by the sea. It looks like it will be truly spectacular a spectacular place to relax and look after your health so head over to lancerhoff.com for more information about all of this and book your visit now it's interesting when ben came on the podcast he also chose the atlantic row as a place where he learned the most about himself so it was clearly a formative time for both of you did yeah did he learn did he tell you that he learned that this is i guess embarrassing my idea it's brilliant um but <laughs> It was it was really hot. We were rowing pretty much close to the equator, and it was really hot. And it was outside in the middle of the day with no hat on. I was like Ben, just you're going to get a heat stroke. Put a hat on. And he was going, no, 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 heat stroke's genetic. I was like, mate, heat stroke is not genetic. The definitely you know, the name of it tells you, and that 
about six hours later, he's throwing up over the side, going, I don't feel well, I must have eaten something. Oh, God. I go, look, we're, we're eating expedition rations, nothing, they, they're freeze-dried, they can't go off. Um, and then I think he did realise that heat stroke wasn't genetic because he wore a hat the next day. But, um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, he definitely learned some things on that trip. Yeah, it sounds like something that you'd never, ever repeat, but that was so important to do. Yeah, I wouldn't really fancy being stuck in a small boat for that long um but it also the reason i think we both went to the south pole with each other is that although we're very different people and approaching us differently i have absolute trust in him and Mm. and 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 the same i guess from him to me that he's also he won't he won't he may not be as competitive as me but he is as stubborn as anything if he says he's going to do something he does it and 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 i have real trust in him i think that's uh, something you, you only build up through shared experience and and he was great to it with and ben i know was a big support at the time of your brain injury for the listeners who might not be aware of exactly what it was that you went through quite how serious it was would you be able to just explain briefly what happened back in 2010 yeah i was doing a a travel endurance travel program for Discovery Channel, which was crossing America from one side to the other. Um, you know, whether it be you know, I was, I was cycled from LA, then ran through Death Valley, and then was cycling up to um, Chicago, going to row one of the Great Lakes up there, and then get back on the bike and, and end up in New York. So, crossing America and, and the wonderful variations of of landscape that it has under your own steam having a real mental map of the country because i think one thing we do lose with planes and trains and you know you don't really get the same mental map as you do if you travel it by by uh human power and, and take in the the massive scale and variety of the of the place um so i was cycling through arizona and it was early early one morning and i got hit from behind by a fuel truck it's wind mirror smacked me on the back of the head uh. and I got a helicopter to the hospital and then was in a um it put me in a, in a coma because of brain swelling and uh I came out sort of ten days later and didn't really well I had no idea what had happened and all I did know is people were looking at me very strangely. Yeah. Although everything seemed to look okay to me. And Ben was, was one of the first people that, that came out here was on holiday with his family and dropped everything and, and flew out to be there and, and that was a huge, um, you know, huge important for for Beth, my wife, time having his support out there and someone that knew me. I spent so much time with me in, in difficult situations, um, and you know, I'm forever thankful for that. The, the reality is that he was there for for a week, and I have no memory of him being there. Gosh, but it was that's the that's what true friendship and real trust is about. He's he was amazing, and he's amazing. So that's ten years ago now. It was 10 years ago yesterday, actually. Really? How yeah. how did that feel, having that anniversary come around? Yeah, my mum sent me a happy day you should have died text. <laughs> oh, God, you're poor man. <laughs> That's a very macabre humour. Yeah, so thanks, mum. Yeah, no. A, a lot of things have happened that I... It makes you thankful for things you take for granted and also the impact of it is is still being felt in terms of... So my, my wife, who was pregnant with our third child whilst I was in a coma, you know, we're, we're getting divorced at the moment. Mm. And it, it definitely, especially my my eldest lad, who well, was doing his GCSEs this year, um, 
was was six when the accident happened and it definitely changed our relationship for for a good few years yeah in terms of for the first three years after between you six and nine when you, you know, the best thing you want for your parents is consistency and love and i was very inconsistent because i didn't really know what's going on especially for the first 18 months so i was a lot more angry so the injury actually affected your behavior and your your moods in your everyday life yeah definitely and it, i think it and then when you know, I, I, I recovered and, but the problem is that it's not like recovering from a, a broken leg when you're in a cast and then you limp a bit and then crutches and then you, you're back to normal. It's a very, it's an unseen injury and people's, and it's unknown as well, really. I think yes. normally people haven't experienced of it or really understand it. And even neurosurgeons go, well, the brain's really complicated. And I'm going, well, hopefully you know about it more than most. But um, <laughs> it's the thing is that people's perceptions of, even if they've known you or haven't known you, their perceptions of what you can do change. And I think one of the reasons that, that Bev and I really struggle, you know, we tried and tried, um, is that whatever happened, I'm always in her eyes, seems the prism of a brain injury mm-hmm. rather than you know, for 17 years, rather than people change over 17 years anyway. Um, mm. But there's something different between people changing ordinarily and you know, watching your husband and dad to two kids at that time and third on the way, you know, having a picture of an apple and then the nurse telling you that's an apple is trying to, you know, the, the basic things that you do with a child when I first came out of a coma. So I think that must change the way you're, you're viewed by someone who's your partner rather than your parent. Yeah, I imagine that must just be so tough. And as you say, particularly because the injury is invisible, this is something that so many people face. You can tell them, you can tell them repeatedly how it's affected you. But if you look okay, it's very hard for people to reconcile that in their minds, which, of course, is so upsetting. Absolutely. I mean, I think if you, if I'd lost a leg, there would be, you'd be treated differently, but there would be a visual reminder of something. And then, whereas there isn't anything. So people either, for a, for a while, thought he's quite, I was definitely, I didn't want to go out for, for a number of years, just. I didn't. I think like the way I felt I was being treated, or people were behaving differently, um, and then people think we were antisocial, and friends were going to call up so many times, and if you can't be bothered to get back to them, or they don't hear from you, they think, well, well, he's not the same, mm. um, and that's that's hard. And I think that's one of the reasons I actually went to study at Cambridge, um, two thousand eighteen nineteen, as a way of proving to people to, and to, to Bev my time was if I can get accepted by Cambridge pass a course at Cambridge and 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 then do sports at Cambridge I went I did the boat race then that'll stop people saying are you the same I think well actually you do high level sport pass a master's at a good university I'd earn the right to people to say well actually okay he's as good as he was whether that's any good or not is another question but at least that's in a way of proving it and you know i handed my thesis in this time last year so i handed it in on the on the anniversary of of the accident and if 
the one the one difficult thing is that yeah, I think in society we're, we're very quick to set limits on what people can do, and the neurologists are, the neuropsychologists are the same. If I told them I wanted to go and do that, they'd have gone, "No, you really need to think about more realistic targets." Whereas I, I, I'm a passionate believer in you set your targets and, and find a way to get there, then you've you've got every chance of getting there. Well, with that 10 year anniversary in mind, it's amazing what you've achieved and how you continue to inspire people with your fearless attitude. So let's get back to the diaries and on to chapter four, which is your all time favourite destination. I think the the place that I enjoyed most was uh, first time I went to Bled in Slovenia. Oh, I want to go there so much. So, so please tell me all about it. It's an amazing. I mean, it's slightly biased in that there's a an amazing lake there. Yeah, Lake Lake Bled. Yeah, and obviously the the the, uh, the town is based around the lake. And I've been there actually now. That I've been there in winter around summer. In winter, it's it all freezes over. You know, Slovenia and the ex Yugoslavia is you know, is fantastic water sport. Oh, sorry, winter sport nation. Um, but they have, yeah. The lake is a big feature of the, of the of the town. What draws people there, and they have the uh, they cut the the lake freeze in winter. And they cut this sort of channel around the edge, for the the swans and ducks and geese to swim around. Oh. And so they keep this channel open just by constantly swimming. So there's this little beautiful parade <laughs> that goes past, uh, and then it's you know, fans around around the lake and. The mountains there, and then just about maybe an hour off of it, they've got this amazing. I did geography as a degree, but there was amazing uh, caves of stalactites and stalagmites that you, you you can visit there. And and the best place to stay, or the best you know, place I stayed was um, so Tito, who was the old president of Yugoslavia. He's got this uh, his summer palace was in Lake Bled, and it's a hotel now. And as long as don't get me wrong, all these ex-Eastern, you know, the Ceausescu's of this world, they did so many appalling things. But what he, and ostentatious, but he had the the 1970s design in this place is still the same. So if you can imagine a very kitsch place with 70s design, this is the opposite in that everything is original and and it's still kept the same and it's just the most fantastic place to stay it's it's unbelievable and in terms of you know there's no expense spared in building it but and decorating it but it's kept in that sort of timeless place and then it's, it's right next to the lake so i think it just really it's a very and it's not that expensive it's not like staying in a palace with palace prices it is just very beautiful so i just looked it up it's called villa bled <laughs> what a setting there's an island in the middle um with a church on it and you you get out to the island and you know you can ring the bell in the church that gives you luck and make a wish and um and so you know i i swim out to, we, you can swim out to the island if you if you choose to go that way but it's it's a fantastic it's beautifully clean water as well it's it's a really a really special place winter or summer oh right next year i'm adding that to my travel wish list definitely how about chapter five, which is your hidden gem, your favourite secret spot? Well, it sounds like from from speaking, you've, you've done a whole whole podcast on France, but I think I genuinely think there are amazing places in France. There are so many unknown lakes. Mm, agreed. Because it is okay. France is the same population as the UK, but it so much of it is vast and empty and beautiful. I would, and there's also I mentioned uh, 
Egbolet near a sort of mineral town called um, Eggsleban AIX. There's, there's there's loads of smaller lakes around there, and it's just fantastic to to travel there. And it's not almost a hidden spot. You can you can flip campsites every two days and just be in a different place. Do you find yourself drawn to water now when you travel? Now that you're not rowing, I do. I'd say I I enjoy big going out in the ocean, but I also I think lakes are, are very special because. It's, the best beaches are really busy or really isolated, but I think the, the lakes are it's easy, to, you know, especially if you go to sort of, you know, a Canadian, I think in a Canadian lake um, in a cabin on a Canadian lake. And yes, it's a, a sport lake in that it had a, you had a canoe, you had a sailboat and there was a motorboat there as well. And, but you still, is it enough in the forest that you'd you'd make your own firewood and you know i think just being near a lake it's very different to being i love the sea but it's it, a it's salty and b the beaches are, you know you get sand everywhere and it's just, oh is that you know. yeah yeah that is a hassle a picnic on a beach it sounds great but the reality is it's just windy and sandy and you may have sand sandwiches to start with whereas a, a lake they've got they also got grass down to the edge which is brilliant I think it's a fantastic way to do it. And you go to somewhere, a, a lake in a hot country, and then you suddenly got warm water as well. It's not like going to a freezing lake in, in England. So, and then it's very easy in a lot of these places, you know, France, um, Italy, Canada's got some amazing lakes in that you, you are actually pretty isolated, but in a very safe place. Mm. My favourite lake is Lake Maggiore. Oh, yeah. Have you been there? Yes. Yeah, in Italy, yeah. We used to train... Um, a place called Varese, um, which was which is nearby. It's magnificent, beautiful. isn't it? Yeah, and they're you know again the Italians are very very lucky, you know, with, and you don't and you don't have to go to Como or you know all the all the big ones with the expensive houses on it. There's just as good lakes around, and and, and almost the towns around those lakes and villages around are more welcoming because of it. Yeah, because they're not overwhelmed by tourism in the same way. Yeah, and they're pre and they welcome you to come rather than just going and being another. One trying to support George Clooney at his house on Lake Como. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, in contrast, Chapter Six is the place that you'd never go back to. Where would that be? Well, I'd, I'd like to go back to it, but I think it's been more the same. Um, it was. I mentioned I was a. I used to did geography at university. I was a geography teacher for a bit before I did Olympic stuff. And America's for the most. Um, you know, very few countries have Alaska at the top. And then you go right down to the sorts of Florida and you know, New Mexico and you know, fascinating place. Um, but then also you've got you've got the Grand Canyon, which is a phenomenal geographical landmark. And I went to, but yeah, everything is just, it's almost so, police is the wrong way. It is obviously, you can't let something like that be run amok, but it's almost... There's 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 not enough freedom to do stuff there in terms of responsible freedom for doing it and there's lots of instructions and um and it just takes the joy of exploring such a mammoth geographical feature because it's it's hard to picture in your head what it's like but there there just seems to be a lot of restrictions there that when I went there and you don't have any freedom to really explore it oh I suppose I really never looked at it that way I was there last year actually you're right about it you're definitely right about it being a place that everyone has to visit once. The scale of it is just hard to fathom, isn't it? Just yeah. an amazing place. And there's no one that I feel is more qualified to talk to us on the extremes of weather than you. 
you've experienced the freezing cold in places like the South Pole and the Canadian Yukon when you were taking part in the coldest race on earth and then the extreme heat of the desert in the Marathon de Sable and when you crossed Oman's empty quarter. So which is truly worse, would you say? Well, I'd say, I'd say the, the one similar thing about uh, whether it be you know the Sahara or Antarctica is they're, they're very similar because they're both deserts. And one's a white desert and one's you know, a dry desert uh, in terms of you know sand and and they're actually they're pretty easy you got to okay there's nothing bad apart from freezing temperature and mistakes that are going to get you in antarctica and you know there's some nasty wildlife in sahara but it's you don't get ill there because there's not it's not so there's loads of viruses flying around in those places. So that that side of it, it's okay. And and take Antarctica, even when you're we were skiing along, tank sledges, sweat, and or you know, the when you when you stopped the the sweat in your top would freeze to you. Um but then you hang it, you go to sleep, and then you hang it on the guy rope, and they've got this uh in Antarctica they have their sublimation, which so there's no there's no state of water. So if you put a freezing top on a guy rope, in the morning it will be freeze-dried. So there'll be no water. It won't, won't go from frozen ice to soaking wet. It will go from frozen ice to dry. Mm. So those things are actually really good because there's no precipitation. Some place in Antarctica hasn't rained for a, you know over a century or snow. So they're quite easy. The worst place uh, in that sense is humidity. So having spent time in in the Amazon, it's rubbish. A, everything trying to eat you, from yeah. you know, tiny bugs to bloody massive snakes. And you're either wet and really hot or about to get wet and really hot. And so it's, <laughs> it's just, and then there is loads of infections there. So it's, it's, it's a whole different sense. And in terms of, of how you survive there, a lot of it is you, you, know, you have obviously dry bags that roll up and you, you, you have your, your day clothes, your wet clothes, and then your night clothes. So you've got to keep your night clothes dry, and you you build a you know a shelter in a tent because you have to be off the ground because everything's trying to eat you on the ground. And so as long as you've got your dry kit dry, you can have under shelter a decent night's sleep. But then in the morning, you've got to put your wet clothes on because you've been wet clothes all day, or they're going to get wet. So, but you need to keep your your wet stuff wet and your dry stuff dry. So that that's the least comfortable. And it's, I have friends of the Isle Forces, and it's um, they talk about husbandry, which is just getting organised and prepared. And if you have bad husbandry, you can oh, you can get away with a bit of bad husbandry in in a desert. Whereas bad husbandry in the Amazon, you that's it. You're in for a world of pain. So humidity is the worst, I think. Yeah. So James, we're coming to the end of your travel diaries, the final chapter, which is chapter seven. That is a destination at the top of your travel bucket list. They're pretty hard to get to, but I think the um, the tabletop mountains or tepui, I think they're called, um, in in Venezuela and South America, they rise out of massive jungle. They're called, well, the locals call them House of the Gods because basically they're up above the the trees and they're dead flat on the top, and they're just they're stunning. I mean, if you look at Google Earth and have the photos. They're just the most amazing things. And I think to see them in in real life would be would be phenomenal. And again, it's 
you, know, you can you can work out how some of the mountains are formed. You know, you think the Himalayas are formed by you know two plates colliding. Others are formed by subduction zones. You've got the volcanic islands, but these you know, I, I struggle to work out how they're formed, and then have so much vegetation around them. It's amazing. What a great bucket list destination, one we've not heard about before on the podcast. I hope you make it there one day. Yeah, I think that's one you have to get a plane to, I reckon, but it's definitely, uh, it'd definitely be amazing to see. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much, James Cracknell. Those were your travel diaries. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ray. Oh, that was James Cracknell. What an inspiring man. I mean, such a story of determination and true grit to you know go above and beyond the odds so um, I really hope you enjoyed hearing those travel diaries I really loved speaking to James if you liked this episode why not subscribe and get new episodes weekly you can do that for free on all the podcast apps like Apple Spotify and Castbox and to find out who's on next week's show come and find me on Instagram I'm at Holly Rubenstein I'd love to hear from you and for everything else podcast related visit thetraveldiariespodcast.com Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to speaking to you again next week. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels easier even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.